Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is July the 27th, 2022. We've been doing a lot of different kind of shows in the last few weeks. And I always like to think that my guests bring the different themes together. So I'm going to try and do that as an introduction to my guest today, Erica Sanchez. Um, we did a show last month with Catherine Angel, the English um, feminist writer, uh, about um, why young women need the right to abortion so that they can take sexual risks and actually grow up. She has an interesting new book out, uh, Daddy Issues. Also had a, a wonderful conversation a few months ago with Monica Guzman, um, the daughter of uh, Mexican immigrants to the United States, about having fearlessly curious conversation. She's a very outspoken writer and thinker. She has a wonderful book out. I never thought of it that way. Also done a number of shows about uh, the Latino community in the United States. So one with the historian Juan Gonzalez, whose classic book, Harvest of Empire, A History of Latinos in America, has just been reissued with a new um, introduction. All these different pieces are perhaps brought together um, with my guest today, Erica L. Sanchez. Her new book, Crying in the Bathroom, a memoir, brings together the themes of feminism and the right to abortion, um, the trials and tribulations and challenges and rewards of being the daughter of Mexican immigrants, and of course, the history of the Hispanic community in the United States. And I'm thrilled that uh, Erica is joining us. Uh, Erica, where are you talking to me from? I forgot to ask before we went live. Hi, yeah, I'm in Chicago. Thank you. Right, so much. the the infamous Chicago where you write about in your book. Are you Do you still live in the same neighborhood where you grew up or have you moved? Oh, no, I don't ever want to again. So I live in a different neighborhood. So, Erica, that introduction, I, I didn't mean to pigeonhole you or categorize you, but do you think that that would be a fair introduction to your your new memoir, Crying in the Bathroom? Um, or am I somehow patronizing you by thinking of your gender and your cultural identity? No, I think that my gender and my cultural identity are central to the work and they're central to who I am as a person. And, you know, I am very proud of being both a woman and being Mexican-American. And so um, I, I find it um, to be an honor, you know, to be a daughter of Mexican immigrants. So this uh, memoir, which has got great reviews, has been described as, and I'm taking this from your Twitter page, uh, equally equal parts P your pants hilarity and break your heart poignancy. Um, do you think that that would be a fair description of, of, of your life so far? Poignant <laughs> and I, hilarious, so funny that people pee in their pants? Um, I think at times, yes, um, th those things have been true of my life. And um, I'm really flattered by that description. Um, my life has been uh, a life of extremes at times. And so I think that really accurately sums it up. 
Erica, I'm not going to ask how old you are because that's a rude question. However, <laughs> you're pretty young. You're certainly much younger than I am. Most people write their memoirs when they're a bit older. What convinced you to write your memoir? Well, um, actually, I'm 38, and I think that's a, a fair question. I wish I was 38, Erica. <laughs> I mean, it's going pretty well for me. Um, I, I know it's probably really audacious to write a memoir when you're not even 40, but uh, originally my idea was to write a series of essays, just, you know, ranting about the things that I wanted to rant about. And it slowly developed into a memoir, and my publisher decided it was a memoir, um, and I was okay with that. I was like, well, I suppose that makes sense. There's a narrative arc. Each essay is um, self-contained, but it's also part of a larger whole, and so it's it works in, in different ways. Um, but yeah, it's it's pretty strange to to have written a memoir. It makes me feel very serious and old. <laughs> yeah, well, it's impressive, um, and it's great that your 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 publisher thought there was demand for it, and clearly there is. When you were writing this, was, was it? a narrative which helped you make sense of yourself? In other words, were you writing for yourself or your audience or a bit of both? You know, it was mostly for myself, but also with the intention of sharing this with the world, in particular women like me, women who grew up not fitting in, who perhaps grew up poor, um, daughters of immigrants, and so I, I try not to think so much about the audience in my initial draft. Um, that, that comes a little bit later for me. But um, I was writing to make sense of my life, to make uh, meaning out of a lot of d despair, a lot of anguish, and you know, find light in it all and, and try to see how the different parts of my life intertwined. Erica, what did you learn about yourself from writing this book and thinking this book through that you didn't know before you started? How was this book a form of enlightenment for yourself? I was able to see a lot of patterns in my life and why I made certain choices. And, um, you know, there are parts of my life that I used to find, like, really embarrassing or, you know, I was ashamed of because... I, I look back on my life with a, a, a critical eye. Um, but in writing this memoir, I started to understand just like what my motivation was in certain situations, why I was in certain relationships, why I ended up, you know, at, at certain jobs. And, um, you know, also I realized that I had this really strong um, resilience and tenacity in being a writer because that was what I felt my calling was even though nothing in the world would you know encourage me to to think that it's interesting you use the word calling um it's certainly an, an important piece in in your narrative I'm not sure how much you use the word but it's implied the idea that you were called to to write what does that feel like when did you first discover it yeah, it felt really overwhelming when I discovered poetry. I started reading Edgar Allan Poe in my sixth grade class, and something about the poetry just 
it made me feel alive and excited and scared and just many things all at once. And I really love that feeling. And I wanted to create that feeling as well. And so I started to write poems and I, I declared myself a poet at that age, which is like really, I think bold now that I think about it, um, I would introduce myself in many situations as a poet. And so um, it, it was something that I felt like I had to do, even though it was going to be a very complicated path. Uh, you, of course, and, and you write about this in, the, in your book, you grew up in the town of Cicero in, in Illinois. How did people react when you told them you were a poet? Well, some teachers were really supportive and um, encouraged me in different ways. And, you know, there was one teacher who would give me books um, to read that he thought I would like and would make me packets of poetry because he knew how much I loved poetry and things like that. I, I was very much encouraged by some very special teachers. Um, but other than that, I, I don't know how much encouragement I got. I, my parents tried to be as supportive as possible, but they didn't quite understand what it was that I was doing. And, you know, they would drive me to poetry readings and poetry events and, you know, they showed their support in that way. But in general, I think it was just a perplexing thing for me to want to be a writer in, in a very working class environment where we didn't see people like that in, in our midst, you know, like I never met professional women until I was in high school. And even then, like they were sparse. <laughs> so yeah, it, it it was a very interesting journey. And yeah, and Cicero isn't a place of opportunity. It's not a place where young people really thrive. Um, it's very working class. It's um, run by very corrupt white people in a town that is mostly Mexican. And um, I mean, I have many problems with it, but um, there are good things there and good things keep emerging from there. And so um, I, I do have pride in that. Erica, uh, we did a show um, a couple of months ago with Anna Maleka Tubbs. Um, she's written this wonderful book, Three Mothers, How the Mothers of MLK, Malcolm X, and James Baldwin shaped a nation. She focuses on the relationship between these mothers and their remarkable sons. Tell me a little bit about your parents. Was there something, do you think, in your parents that inspired you to become such a, a nonconformist, to do something that was so unthinkable within your community? Well, I think the first um, part of the story that, like, sets off my my path as a writer is my parents crossing the border um, without documentation by foot um, in Tijuana to come to the United States. And then they were then smuggled in the trunk of Cadillac with several other people. And so for me, that story is, is really important because I think about like the bravery that it must have taken for my parents to take such a chance and to know that there wasn't a safety net here, but they came anyway because they wanted to have more opportunities and to have uh, opportunities for their future children. 
And so I think that's a very bold move. Uh, and mostly it was orchestrated by my mother. She was the one who wanted to leave her hometown because she didn't want to uh, live in poverty. And so um, I think both of my parents are very brave in, in that sense. Um, and I, I became very um, much a, a rebel in my early years, ever since I was a child, I was questioning the way that things function and the way things were and racism and sexism. And um, I think that that's sort of attitude of, of wanting something better came from my parents. Yeah, it's interesting that you describe your parents as bold. And of course, they were enormously brave people willing to risk their lives to come to a new country. You present yourself and you're clearly a very bold person and you're a bold writer. Um, how, how would you respond to particularly conservative critics of immigration uh, who argue that somehow people like your parents are un-American? Given that um, Americanness is for the most part rooted in boldness, in willingness to take risks, in challenging authority. Yeah, that's the idea, but um, I, I believe that it's only encouraged in certain populations, like white men. So we have this myth that, you know, white men created this democracy uh, because they were ambitious and they didn't want to be controlled by Britain. But really, it was all about slavery. And so I, I, it's just like this this notion that we've been fed over and over again. And so it's, it's funny to me when people believe that that my parents and others like them are not Americans simply because they were born in another land when my parents risked everything to be American. And here they are raising three very successful children, um, you know, in, in some ways thriving and in other ways not. Um, but here contributing to society and, and you know, like cultivating a life and to say that they're not American really breaks my heart. And, you know, at this point, nothing surprises me, but um, that sort of idea, I think, is getting really old. And I mean, I've never accepted it. And I feel like our younger generations are no longer accepting it either. And so I'm excited to see that shift. Erica, we've done a as you can guess, a number of we've had a number of conversations and authors on white feminism and identity. We did one with Kyla Schuler, who has an interesting book out, "The Trouble with White Women: A Counter History of Feminism." Also, did one with Ju Julissa Arce. I I'm sure you, you, you're probably familiar with her work. She's my uh, friend. <laughs> like a white girl. Uh, the case for rejecting assimilation. Where do you stand on this issue of assimilation and self-identity for um, a prominent writer like yourself? Do you think it's an important issue? I think it is. And I'm with Julissa, um, who I, I know very well and is a great friend. I believe that we should reject that idea of having to adapt ourselves to fit into this mainstream that doesn't even accept us when we do so. Um, I think it's a, a myth to to think that if we 
change enough, we will be accepted by white people because that's just not true. We're not safe here because of this rhetoric that continues to, to flourish in certain areas about um, who we are as a people, what, why we're here. Um, I, I think it's just nonsense at this point for me to assimilate in any way because I have reached this level in which I get to be my most authentic self. And, um, you know, that's something that no one can take away from me now. And, and I want to like make room for other young people of color, all people of color to be who they are and be proud of that because we bring so much to the table. We're just often told that we're not enough. And that's just simply not true. What about white people? Um... Erica, we've done, again, many shows on this whole issue of, of whiteness and self-identity. Did one recently with Baynard Woods, uh, uh, a journalist from uh, North Carolina. He has a book, Inheritance, an autobiography of whiteness, which he suggests that all whites need to essentially take responsibility for their whiteness. Would you, I, I, you I'm not sure if you know his work or the book, but would you kind of agree with him that it's not, it's not for non-whites to think about their identity. It's for whites themselves. That's the only way we're going to get beyond the divisions and racism in America today. Well, I love that idea. And I really need to read that book because I think it's a very interesting concept. Um, I wish that white Americans would look at themselves and look at their history and be more honest about what actually happened here in the United States and acknowledge things like slavery and racism and things of that nature. Um, I, I don't know how much I, I want to depend upon white people in this moment. Uh, I feel like um, it's, it's kind of a scary thing to, to pin my hopes on them right now when um, a lot of us don't feel safe and a lot of us are really scared for the future. Um, and so I hope that, you know, in, in these times that white Americans will look at their history a little more critically and understand that white supremacy is what was the founding of, of this country, you know, and I think that there just has to be some sort of responsibility acknowledging that the way that this country was founded on, on the backs of slaves has benefited white people greatly. And so I'm not saying that I don't need like people to flagellate themselves or anything like that. But I just want people to acknowledge what actually happened, the truth. Uh, white supremacy is very different from white people. Also, I like to differentiate between those two, not all white people are white supremacists. You could be a white supremacist and be a person of color. And so it's all very complicated, but I think the the source of our ills is in fact white supremacy. Uh, your book also focuses on your history of mental illness uh, and crying in the bathroom. We did a show yesterday with uh, an, an NYU um, doctor, Orna Ophir, Schizophrenia and Unfinished History, and she argued that the pathology of schizophrenia might reflect a broken society as much as a broken mind. Do you think that your history of 
mental instability. Again, I want to be careful with the words I use yeah. here. A more a reflection of what's wrong with America than what's wrong with yourself. You know, I've thought about this a lot, and I think two things were happening happening concurrently. Uh, I think I was biologically predisposed to depression, um, and then my circumstances made it so that that depression manifested itself. And so, um, I think the lack of opportunities, the lack of resources, um, the lack of like feeling important in this society, all of that did contribute to my mental illness. So um, I think it's it's exacerbated by the circumstances of our world. It seems to be a generation of, of people in America, especially young people, young women struggling with, with mental problems. What advice would you give America? You, in some senses, overcome them, although, of course, one never really overcomes these things. Yeah, it's a process and um, you don't magically cure such a thing, you know, I, I wish that were the case. Um, but I I would say that under any circumstances, if you feel that you're unsafe to yourself, if you feel that you can't function, if you are so depressed that you are afraid, then um, you need to see a medical professional and it, hopefully it doesn't get to that point where it's that bad but um i think that a lot of people just don't understand that mental illness is uh, a medical issue and that it can be treated with various treatments and uh erica um the book um uh crying in the bathroom a memoir is a manifesto in many ways of, of of rebellion. One of the things that you rebelled on was the religion front. We're doing a show uh, later this week, Simranjit Singh, The Light We Give, about Sikh wisdom. You found another kind of religious wisdom in Buddhism. How did you get from Catholicism to Buddhism? Well, you know, at around the same time that I discovered poetry, I also discovered that I was an atheist and I didn't really want to follow my family's uh, religion anymore because it felt really oppressive to me. I felt like it was um, oppressive to women. I felt like it was something that hurt me instead of helped me. And so um, what, what actually happened was there was a, a sermon given. Um, I, I don't remember exactly what the context was, but the, the priest or the deacon was talking about how women needed to submit to their husbands and at 12 years old i was just really appalled by this idea of of having to submit to a husband i just thought that was ludicrous and so you know i questioned what that meant and and my parents didn't really have any answers for me and i i was reading so much and i started to question and I just decided this is not for me and it caused a lot of strife in my family. Um, but ultimately, you know, my parents had to accept it, especially by the time I moved out, they couldn't really enforce it anymore. Um, and so Buddhism was something that always was alluring to me because it seemed that Buddhists were more in tune with the world and um, I had like this romantic notion of what Buddhism was. And um, 
I didn't actually pursue it until I was in my 20s, uh, which didn't really pan out. I had a, a very strange experience at a Buddhist temple. Um, but then I met a friend who I found to be so enlightened and funny and cool. And I wanted to embody that as well. And so um, I started to practice with him. He took me to meetings and then I eventually converted, which meant that I received this scroll that I, I chant to um, uh, ideally every morning and every night. And it's, it's brought me so much solace and peace. Uh, your first book was a, it's going to be made into a Netflix film. So congratulations. That is, I'm not your perfect mm -hmm. Mexican daughter. You are anything but a perfect Mexican daughter, which I think is a compliment to you and your family. Could you imagine having a daughter as rebellious as yourself, as troublesome? I think my daughter is. Uh, she's one and a half, and I'm kind of. Is she going to grow up to be a mini Erica Sanchez? Uh, I think Your she's going to be better. Grower. She's going to be a lot better, but yeah, she she's very feisty and um, really independent, very funny, very curious, and so um, I, I think I'm prepared in some ways because I live that, and um, I'm I know what what it will be like, perhaps. But my mother didn't have any sort of framework. And so I, I feel bad for her that she had to like endure this. It was really, um, you know, something that that she was perplexed by all of my ideas and, and my very strong opinions. And so um, I think um, I am going to be a lot more understanding with my daughter, but that's just being ambitious. I don't know. <laughs> Do you think there'll be though that the sort of the next generation of kids of women like you might rebel in ways that um, would offend you or our generation? Well, I I hope I'm just there supporting them. And uh, so far, you know, with my students, I love the way that they rebel. I love that they question so much of the status quo and. I think they're um, a very exciting generation, and um, I, I hope to be there with them as they, as they, you know, burn down the patriarchy. I had an interesting conversation with my old friend Carol Anderson. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her, uh, African American writer from Emory University, very influential. At the end of our conversation, I asked her if she was optimistic, and she said yeah, about the future. Obviously, at a time where a lot of people aren't particularly optimistic. And she said, yes. And I said, well, you're very American, more American than most. And she laughed and said, yes. Do, are you an optimist? And, and do you think of yourself now as an American? Is there something quintessentially American about yourself? And indeed, about this memoir, Crying in the Bathroom, it certainly struck a nerve in America. Yeah, I do feel more American. I feel like I'm very patriotic because I... I really see the potential in our country and I see a lot of the beauty that that society may not see. And so in a sense, yes, I am more American. In another sense, I'm very frustrated with being an American and being in this country. And so um, I, I'm pulled in, in both ways. And I think that I am ultimately an optimist because that's the only way for me to survive such things, you know, like 
so many different attacks on on people like me, my family, my husband, you know, it's just it's just this constant struggle to remain hopeful because of the different kinds of violence that we see all the time. And so it, it requires great effort and um, struggle. But, you know, there's this quote from Rebecca Solnit's Hope in the Dark, where she says that hope is to give yourself to the future. And so I like to see it in that way that, you know, hope is having a sense of, you know, a continuation uh, of things getting better in, in any way possible. You know, like I, I feel like I'm always going to fight to make the world better. Um, whether that, it, you know, is whether the, the, you know, the buildings around me are crumbling and, you know, there's like an apocalypse, I, I will still want to believe that there's a way to um, make us better and to find a way to live on this earth in a way that isn't, you know, violent and terrifying. In your fighting, and I use that word carefully, as a writer, your first book, Lessons of Expulsion, a collection of poems was acclaimed. Of course, um, uh, the book, um, uh, uh, your new book, um, Crying in the Bathroom, a memoir is what we're talking about. And then um, I'm Not Your Perfect uh, Mexican Daughter is is uh, your your debut uh, narrative nonfiction. Um, what responsibility, Erica, do you think writers in particular have? I, I saw you, you, you did an interview with the New York Times mm. in which you argued that more authors should write about money. Should, should writers be more down to earth in terms of the struggles of everyday Americans, the everyday struggles of ordinary Americans? Is that one way to go? Rather than becoming poets, they might write about money. You know, I think you could do both. I think that in my poetry, I write about the realities of being poor in this country. And um, I wish that more writers would write about what it's really like to struggle as a regular person in this country. And I got a, a flood of messages from white men um, trying to correct me saying that, yes, we do write about money and giving me all of these examples, which really proves my point. Um, the thing is that in our contemporary culture, in many of the books that I've read, um, I, I haven't seen an attention to that detail, which is very, very important to many of us. Um, you know, I I want to know how a, a character can afford to do a certain thing. Um, I don't want to have to imagine that because I, I I don't really get what it's like. Now I do, but I didn't as I was growing up. I didn't get what it was like to be privileged, and so it was just kind of a given in these texts that. People had summer homes, people had vacations, people did this and that. And for me, that was very foreign. And I just, I would love to see more literature um, that is more down to earth. And, you know, I think writers of color have been doing so for a very long time. And, um, you know, I mean, right, white writers could do whatever they want, but I would like to see them be more mindful of that fact. 
been a lot of criticism, Erica, of the writing industry. Most people who can, quote unquote, afford to work in publishing uh, books like yours, Crying in the Bathroom, it's not a very well paid industry. Do you, do you think that the, the book business also needs to rethink itself? Yeah, I mean, I think there was a recent walkout at Simon and Schuster for more um, reasonable pay, which I think is great. I think that the structure of of the publishing industry is antiquated; that it only allows certain people to enter um, because it it really people have to depend upon outside uh, financial help when uh, navigating this career because it's it's not well paid. And so I, I, I think that there needs to be a, a revision of how this works so we can get more editors of color and um, authors of color as well. It, it, I mean, it's, it's a very white business still, but I do think that it is changing very well, not quickly enough, but but also quickly in the sense that it happened all at once. Um, it, we didn't have a lot of progress, and then suddenly there was a boom. And so I want to keep that momentum going. Well, Erica, congratulations again on the book, Crying in the Bathroom, a memoir. You've been very poignant. You haven't made me pee in my pants yet, but maybe another time. Um, <laughs> But your, your book, it will make everyone pee in their pants. So it needs to be read. It's just, uh, I think it's going to be a, another bestseller from Erica L. Sanchez, one of America's, I'll call you a young writer, Erica. You're certainly uh, under 40, you. which is where most of us would like to be. So you are still relatively young. Congratulations. Um, in addition mm -hmm. to your new book, Crying in the Bathroom, a memoir, what else should people be reading? What are you reading these days? I'm sure you're, a, you're an avid reader. Oh yeah, I I don't feel comfortable if I'm not reading like three books at a time, actually. And so one of them uh, that I just finished is How to Be an Anti-Racist by uh, Ibram X. Kendi. Yeah, that's uh, a popular book, I think. So good, it's just so good. I love the way he implicates himself, the way he makes it so accessible to everyone. Um, the concepts were just, really easy to understand and um i think it's, it's wonderful and um recently i read a collection of poetry by paul tran called um all the flowers kneeling which was incredibly beautiful very devastating um and i i think it's gonna win all sorts of awards so um i i highly recommend you purchase that